grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a podcast devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical, beneficial, and clear. Friends, we want to be hopeful and helpful in our work. You can learn more about it at uwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm one of the hosts, Isaac Adams, and this will be an unusual episode because we're in unusual times. In this episode, I'm going to read a sermon written by Francis Grimke that he gave to his church in 1918, when his church reopened for public gatherings after a four-week ban during the epidemic of influenza. Grimke was the pastor of 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He was also the inspiration for United We Pray. The idea for this ministry first came when I read a sermon series preached by Grimke in 1898 entitled The Negro, His Rights and Wrongs, The Forces for Him and Against Him. In that series, a sermon entitled God and Prayer as Factors in the Struggle convicted and helped me and inspired me and others to pray more about the racial strife in churches and around churches. And Brother Grimke has served us yet again with another word. During Grimke's ministry, the Spanish flu struck the U.S. between October 1918 and February 1919. An estimated 50,000 cases were reported in the District of Columbia, and 3,000 D.C. residents lost their lives. At the peak of the epidemic, the D.C. government banned all public gatherings, including churches. The ban lasted for three to four weeks, depending on how you count. Given the present-day coronavirus threat and the plethora of responses to it, I thought Brother Grimke's words could be of especial encouragement to us. Maybe your own congregation has decided to close its public gatherings. The congregation in which I'm one of the pastors, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., has decided to do just that. And what we found was that Grimke led his church to do the same during the Spanish flu. Again, what follows is the message comprised of eight remarks that he gave his church when they reopened. Before I read this message, let me make three comments. Number one, I'm not reading this for the purposes of inspiring fear. And if there is a fear I hope this inspires, I pray it's only the fear of the Lord. That's the fear that marks Christians. The point of this reading isn't to compare our present-day crisis with Grimke's, but rather to be instructed and encouraged. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.11 when he looked at the deaths of Israelites, these things were written down for our instruction. I feel similarly about Brother Grimke's words. Number two, I want to thank Emory University for publishing the transcript I'll be reading. And I also want to thank Caleb Morell, a colleague of mine who brought my attention to Grimke's sermon. Caleb has done a good historical survey of how D.C. churches responded when the government banned public gatherings during the Spanish flu of 1918. I've quoted some of Caleb's work already. The Washington Post cited some of his work, and we'll link to it in the show notes. We'll also include links to the transcript I'm reading, one version that'll be easier to read on your phone, and one that's better for printing. Number three, let's be praying, brothers and sisters, for pastors and congregations during these difficult times. Things are literally changing by the hour. Uh, I'm recording this on Monday, March 16th, 2020, and it was just last night on the 15th that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that gatherings over 50 not meet for eight weeks, though some of the caveats around this recommendation make it confusing as to how this applies to churches. Regardless, this is the most aggressive federal guidance issued yet in response to the coronavirus outbreak. 
And as Pastor John Onwuchekwa recently said, pastoring during a pandemic was not a course offered in his seminary training. Mine neither. Pastors particularly need prayer in this difficult time. One prayer we often say at United We Pray is Jehoshaphat's prayer in 2 Chronicles 20.12. Oh Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Beloved, praise God that we have God to look to. Praise him that we have the testimony of other faithful Christians throughout history to consider as well. Our brother Jeff Chang published an article about how Spurgeon spoke about a health crisis in 1854. We'll also link to that in the show notes. But for now, let's listen to Brother Grimke, who preaches to us still today. I pray the sermon edifies you, and I'll pray after I read it as well. The sermon is entitled, Some Reflections Growing Out of the Recent Epidemic of Influenza That Afflicted Our City a discourse delivered in the 15th Street Presbyterian Church, Washington, D.C., Sunday, November 3, 1918, by the pastor, Reverend Francis J. Grimke. 2 Samuel 24, 15-16 So Jehovah sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even until the time appointed, And there died of the people from Dan, even unto Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched forth his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Jehovah repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Now, stay thy hand. We know now, perhaps as we have never known before, the meaning of the terms pestilence, plague, epidemic, since we have been passing through this terrible scourge of Spanish influenza, with its enormous death rate and its consequent wretchedness and misery. Every part of the land has felt its deadly touch, north, south, east, and west, in the army, in the navy, among civilians, among all classes and conditions, rich and poor, high and low, white and black. Over the whole land, it has thrown a gloom and has stricken down such large numbers that it has been difficult to care for them properly, overcrowding all of our hospitals. And it has proven fatal in so many cases that it has been difficult at times to get coffins enough in which to place the dead and men enough to dig graves fast enough in which to bury them. Our own beautiful city has suffered terribly from it, making it necessary as a precautionary measure to close the schools, theaters, churches, and to forbid all public gathering within doors as well as outdoors. At last, however, the scourge has been stayed, and we are permitted again to resume the public worship of God and to open again the schools of our city. Now that the worst is over, I've been thinking, as doubtless you all have been, of these calamitous weeks through which we have been passing, thinking of the large numbers that have been sick, the large numbers that have died, the many, many homes that have been made desolate, the many, many bleeding, sorrowing hearts that have been left behind. And I have been asking myself the question, what is the meaning of it all? What ought it mean to us? Is it to come and go and we be no wiser or better for it? Surely God had a purpose in it, and it is our duty to find out as far as we may what that purpose is and try to profit by it. Among the things which stand out in my own mind as I have been thinking the whole matter 
over are these. Number one, I have been impressed with the ease with which large portions of the population may be wiped out in spite of the skill of man, of all the resources of science. Suddenly, this epidemic came upon our city and country, and though every physician has been employed and every available nurse has been at work day and night, thousands have died. The awful death toll continued. Through all history, we find populations thinned out in this way, not in ordinary, but in extraordinary ways. One night in Egypt, death found its way into every Egyptian home. In number 1649, we read of a plague that broke out among the people in which 14,700 perished. In 2 Samuel 24:15, we also read of another plague that broke out in the reign of David in which during three days, 70,000 perished. Thousands also have perished suddenly as the result of volcanic eruptions or earthquake shocks. How easy it would be for God to wipe out the whole human race in this way if he wanted to. For these terrible epidemics, plagues, the mighty forces of nature, all are at his command, are all his agents. At any moment, if he willed it, in this way, vast populations or portions of populations could be destroyed. Number two, I have had also this question come into my mind. Why of those who took the disease have some recovered and others did not? The reason may be found in one sense in purely natural causes. Some were physically better, prepared to resist the disease, were stronger in vital power and so pulled through. Others, not having sufficient vitality, went down under the strain. But I believe there is also another reason and is to be found in the will of God. For some, the time of their departure had come. The limit of their earthly existence had been reached, and this was God's way of removing them out of this world into the next. Someday, we have all got to go. But how, or when, or where, we do not know. That is with God alone. In Job 12.10, we read, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. And in Psalm 104, verse 29, thou takest their breath, they die. And elsewhere we are told, not a sparrow falls to the ground without his notice, that is, without his consent or approval. We speak of accidental death at times, but there are no accidents with God. All things are within the scope of his providence. Some did not recover because it was not the will of God that they should. Number three. Another question similar to the above kept also constantly going through my mind. Why are some taken with the disease and others not? As I went up and down these streets and as I saw people and came into contact with them, I felt that any moment any one of us might be attacked. It was like an army going into battle. No one knew who would be hit. The point to which I am calling attention is that some were not hit. Some did not get the disease. And the question that I am asking is, why not? As I was thinking of this question, the 91st Psalm came into my mind, which perhaps you will recall, and which seems to have just 
such distressing circumstances in view as those through which we have been passing. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will sing of Jehovah. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover thee with his pinions, and under his wings shall, shall thou take refuge. His truth is a shield and a buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Here there seems to be the promise of immunity in the midst of plagues and pestilences. What this means, I do not know. How far we may expect immunity under such circumstances, I do not know. These words cannot mean that all good people will escape and that only the bad will be smitten. For, as a matter of fact, we know that during every epidemic, some very good people are smitten, and some, not very good people, escape. And therefore, I say I do not know what is meant by the promise contained in this 91st Psalm. It refers to those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High. But who are they? How shall we know them? How shall we discriminate between them and all others? It won't do to say. All who are smitten are excluded, or that all who escape are included, because we know that such is not the case. It is one of those inscrutable things that we cannot explain. We know the fact, and that is all. The ultimate explanation must be found in the sovereign will of God. It must be because he wills it. Number four. Another thing that has impressed me in connection with this epidemic is the fact that conditions may arise in a community which justify the extraordinary exercise of powers that would not be tolerated under ordinary circumstances. This extraordinary exercise of power was resorted to by the commissioners in closing up the theaters, schools, and churches, and forbidding all gatherings of any considerable number of people indoors and outdoors, and restricting the numbers who should be present even at funerals. The ground of the exercise of this extraordinary power was found in the imperative duty of the officials to safeguard, as far as possible, the health of the community by preventing the spread of the disease from which we were suffering. There has been considerable grumbling, I know, on the part of some, particularly in regard to the closing of the churches. It seems to me, however, in a matter like this, it is always wise to submit to such restrictions for the time being. If, as a matter of fact, it was dangerous to meet in theaters and in schools, it certainly was no less dangerous to meet in churches. The fact that churches were places of religious gathering and the others not would not affect in the least the health question involved. If avoiding crowds lessens the dangers of being infected, it was wise to take the precaution and not needlessly run in danger and expect God to protect us. And so, anxious as I have been to resume work, I have waited patiently until the order was lifted. 
I started to worry at first, as it seemed to upset all of our plans for the fall work, but I soon recovered my composure. I said to myself, Why worry? God knows what he is doing. His work is not going to suffer. It will rather be a help to it in the end. Out of it, I believe, great good is coming. All the churches, as well as the community at large, are going to be the stronger and better for this season of distress through which we have been passing. Number five. Another thing that has impressed me in connection with this epidemic is how completely it has shattered the theory so dear to the heart of the white man in this country that a white skin entitles its possessor to better treatment than one who possesses a dark skin. I once heard Mr. Tillman from the floor of the Senate say he believed that God made the white man, and that means the meanest, the lowest, the most ignorant and degraded white man, out of a little better clay than he made the black man. Poor fool. He knows differently now. Death knocked the scales from his eyes. He found himself, the moment the breath left his body, in the presence of a being with whom the color of his skin counted for nothing. He lived, unfortunately, under that delusion. And it is the delusion under which the white man in all this broad land is living today. But during this epidemic scourge, if he gave any thought to the matter, if a particle of sense remained in him, he must have seen the folly of counting upon a white skin. Did the whiteness of his skin protect him? Did the epidemic pause to see whether his skin was white or black before smiting him? Of what value has a white skin been during these weeks of suffering and death? What possible advantage has accrued to anyone because of the whiteness of his skin? During these terrible weeks, while the epidemic raged, God has been trying in a very pronouncedly, conspicuously, and vigorous way to beat a little sense into the white man's head. Has been trying to show him the folly of the empty conceit of his vaunted race superiority by dealing with him just as he dealt with the peoples of darker hue. For once a white skin counted for nothing in the way of securing better treatment in the way of obtaining for its possessor considerations denied to those of a darker hue. And, not only in epidemics and scourges, but also in the great convulsions of nature, in earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, tidal waves, in the disasters on the sea and land, the same great lesson is taught. Under such circumstances, of what avail is the color of a man's skin or his race identity? What is the lightning, the thunderbolt, the burning lava, the sea care about color or race? White and black alike are dealt with indiscriminately. The one is smitten as readily as the other. The one is swallowed up as readily as the other. And that is the lesson which God is teaching everywhere through the operation of natural laws. And it is the great lesson which he also teaches in his inspired word, and which Jesus Christ, who said, I am the light of the world, he that followeth after me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, sought constantly to emphasize both by precept and example. In this terrible epidemic, 
which has afflicted not only this city, but the whole country, there is a great lesson for the white man to learn. It is the folly of his stupid color prejudice. It calls attention to the fact that he is acting on a principle that God utterly repudiates as he has shown during the epidemic scourge, and as he will show him when he comes to deal with him in the judgment of the great day of solemn account. The lesson taught is clear and distinct. But will he learn it? Will he lay it to heart? Will he profit by it and seek to mend his evil ways? He may, but I have grave doubts as to whether he will or not. The probabilities are that he will still go on in his evil ways, will still go on believing that a white skin entitles its possessor to better treatment than a dark skin, will still go on practicing his infamous discriminations against colored people in departments of the general government and all over the country. One thing he may be sure of, however, he may continue to live under that delusion, but there will be a rude awakening someday. It may be when it is too late. The dark skin which he despises and seeks in every possible way to belittle, to, to depreciate, may be the millstone about his neck that will sink him to perdition. For this awful race prejudice, this color phobia out of which so much that is evil has come, so much suffering, so much heart burnings to those who are the victims of it, but which is regarded so lightly by the white man, so lightly that it never brings him any compunction of conscience, so lightly that even in revivals of religion it is never included by him among the sins to be repented of, is not the little thing that he thinks it is. For it is an offense against the great law of love, against the great law of human brotherhood, as well as against the great law of righteousness, of justice. Jesus said, The first and great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Race prejudice. Color phobia runs directly counter to both of these great commandments. And therefore, never mind what the white man may think of it, we see clearly what God thinks of it. And it is the estimate that he puts upon it that is to determine its character. Let us hope, therefore, not only for the sake of people of color, but also for the sake of the white people themselves, that the great lesson as to the folly of race prejudice of assuming that a white skin entitles one to better treatment than a dark skin, which this epidemic has so strikingly taught, may be lost upon them. It is a lesson which, for their own sake, it is well for them to learn. It will be better for them here, and it will be better for them hereafter, if they learn it, and learn it well. And of course, it will be better for us as a race in this country. It will remove out the way some very serious obstacles to our progress and will relieve us of many of the disagreeable things that we are at present forced to endure, though not without protest. Number six. Another thing has impressed me during this epidemic. It has brought out in a way that is very gratifying 
the high estimation in which the Christian church is held in the community, the large place which it really occupies in the thought of the people, the fact that for several weeks we have been shut out from the privileges of the sanctuary has brought us home to as never before what the church has really meant to us. We hadn't thought, perhaps, very much of the privilege while it lasted. But at the moment it was taken away, we saw at once how much it meant to us. One of the gratifying things to me during the scourge has been the sincere regrets that I have heard expressed all over the city by numbers of people at the closing of the churches. The theater goers, of course, have regretted the closing of the theaters. I do not know whether the children or the teachers have regretted the closing of the schools or not. I have heard no regrets expressed. But I do know that large numbers of people have regretted the closing of the churches. I hope that now that they are opened again, that we will all show our appreciation of their value by attending regularly upon their surfaces. It would be a great calamity to any community to be without the public ministrations of the sanctuary. There is no single influence in a community that counts for more than the Christian church. It is one of the institutions, particularly, that ought to be strongly supported, that ought to be largely attended, and that ought to have the hearty endorsement and well wishes of every right-thinking man and woman within it. It is a great mistake for anyone to stand aloof from the Christian church. Everybody in the community ought to have a church home and ought to be found in that church home, Sabbath after Sabbath. Number seven, there is another thing connected with this epidemic that is also worthy of note. While it lasted, it kept the thought of death and of eternity constantly before the people. As the papers came out day after day, among the first things that everyone looked for or asked about was as to the number of deaths. And so the thought of death was never allowed to stay very long out of the consciousness of the living. And with the thought of death, the great thought also of eternity, for it is through death that the gates of eternity swing open. We don't, as a general thing, think very much about either death or eternity. They are not pleasant things to think about, and so we avoid thinking of them as much as possible. It is only when we are forced to that we give them any consideration, and even then, only for the moment. They are both subjects of vital importance, however, involving the most momentous consequences. For after death is always the judgment. The grim messenger is God's summons to us to render up our account. That there is an account to be rendered up, we are inclined to lose sight of, to forget. But it is to be rendered all the same. The books are to be opened and we are to be judged out of the books. During the weeks of this epidemic, in, in the long list of deaths, and the large number of new-made graves, and the unusual number of funeral processions along our streets, God has been reminding us of this account, which we must soon render up. He has been projecting before us in a way to startle us the thought of eternity. You who are not Christians, who have not yet repented of your sins, who have not yet surrendered yourselves to the guidance of Jesus Christ, 
If you allow these repeated warnings that you have had day by day, week by week to go unheeded, if you still go on in your sins, should God suddenly cut you off in your sins, you will have no one to blame but yourselves. It won't be God's fault if you are lost, if eternity finds you unprepared. God has opened the way for your salvation through the gift of his holy only begotten son who died that you might have the opportunity of making your peace with God, the opportunity of having your sins forgiven and of laying hold of life, spiritual and eternal. And he has notified you not only of the consequences of sin, but of what provision he has graciously made for your escape. If you desire to escape. This is all he can do. This is all that he's going to do. Your fate is in your own hands. If you choose life, it will be life. If you choose death, it will be death. My earnest appeal to you is to let it be life and not death. And let the choice be made at once. Before you go out of this house, make up your minds to do the right thing, the wise thing, the only sensible thing. You have come out of this epidemic alive while thousands have perished. Are you going to spend the rest of your days in the service of sin and Satan or in the service of God? You know what you ought to do. You know what you will do if you consult your best interest. If you do the right thing. Number eight, there is only one other thought that has come to me in connection with this epidemic. It is of the blessedness of religion, of the sense of security, which a true living, working faith in the Lord Jesus Christ gives one in the midst of life's perils. I felt, as doubtless you all felt, who are Christians, the blessedness of a firm grip upon Jesus Christ, the blessedness of a realizing sense of being anchored in God in his precious promises. While the plague was raging, while thousands were dying, what a comfort it was to feel that we were in the hands of a loving father who was looking out for us, who had given us the great assurance that all things should work together for our good. And therefore, that come what would, whether we were smitten with the epidemic or not, or whether being smitten we survived or perished, we knew it would be, we knew it would be well with us. That there was no reason to be alarmed. Even if death came, we knew it was all right. The apostle says, it is gain for me to die. Death had no terrors for him. He says, the hour of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of glory, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give at that day. And not to me only, but to all them that love his appearing. And it was the same apostle who flung in the face of death the defiance. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, who give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In the presence of such a faith, in the realization of God's love as revealed in Jesus Christ, in the consciousness of fellowship with him, what are epidemics? What are scourges? What are all of life's trials, sufferings, and disappointments? They only tend to work out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But, of course, if faith is to help us, if it is to be put, if it is to put its great strong arms under us, if we are to feel its sustaining power under such distressing circumstances, it must be a real living faith in God. It must be the genuine article, a faith that works, that works by love and that purifies the heart. Any other faith is of absolutely no value to us in the midst of the great crises of life. And I said to myself while the epidemic was on and while I was examining my own heart to see how far my religion was helping me to be calm, self-possessed. It is a good time for those of us who are Christians to examine ourselves, to see exactly how it is with us, whether the foundation upon which we are building is a rock foundation whether our faith is really resting upon Christ, the solid rock, or not. And I still feel that one important function of this epidemic will be lost if it fails to have that effect upon us, if it does not lead us to careful heart-searching on our part. If, as a result of such examination, we find that we did not get out of our religion very much help, embracing us up under the strain through which we have been passing, then we know that there is something wrong. Either we have no faith at all, or it is very weak, and therefore that we need to give a little more attention to our spiritual condition than we have been giving. It shows that we are running down spiritually. Or, if we find that we were helped, that our fears were allayed as we thought of our relations to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, then we have additional reason why we should cling all the closer to him and why we should be all the more earnest in our efforts to serve him. We ought to come out of this epidemic more determined than ever to run with patience the race that is set before us, more determined than ever to make heaven our home. And this, I trust, is the purpose, the determination of us all. Let us all draw near to God in simple faith. Let us reconsecrate ourselves, all of us, to him. Let us all make up our minds to be better Christians. Francis J. Grimke, Washington, D.C., November 3rd. 1918. Let's pray. God help us. In these confusing, frightening days, help us. We know, Lord, that so many have turned to Psalm 91. Lord, we thank you for giving it to us. Uh, Father, we pray that we would all be sobered by the reality of pestilence, 
Lord, as we know, the elderly are more susceptible to coronavirus. Lord, we pray that younger people would not treat this as any light matter. Uh, Father, we pray that we wouldn't assume that because something isn't a problem for us, it's not a problem. Because your word makes clear that when one part of the body suffers, all suffer. And that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, in light of Psalm 91, we offer up to you the words of yet another song to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alameth, a song. O God, you are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad your city, God, your holy habitation. You who are the most high, you are in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. You will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. You utter your voice. The earth melts. You, O Lord of hosts, is with, you're with us. You're the God of Jacob, and you're our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. O oh Lord, this is what you do. And so we listen to your word, which bids us be still and know that you are God. You will be exalted among the nations. You will be exalted in the earth. O oh God, the Lord of hosts, you are with us. You, O oh God of Jacob, are our fortress. Selah. We pray this in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace and peace. Pray.